we are, we're in our series called Shadows. And anytime you see a shadow, it is proof that there is light. So each week what we're doing is looking at the shadows that prove that Jesus Christ is the light of the world. And this week, the shadow is Jesus's own claims about himself. And let me tell you this about his claims. His claims about himself demand that we don't just have a mild reaction to him. It's very common when you ask somebody about Jesus, they'll say, well, I think he's a great moral teacher. And the reality is that because of his claims that he has made about himself, he is either far greater than a moral teacher or far less than a moral teacher, but he cannot simply just be a moral teacher. So why would I say that? Because no mere moral teacher claims to be God. If he was not God, that would be something incredibly immoral to do. C.S. Lewis says this about Jesus. He says, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic, else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. What Lewis is saying is that given the claims that he has made about himself, we've got to either say... His claims are insisting. We've got to either say he's a liar, he's a lunatic, or he is God himself. So our text today is going to help us figure that out. So we're in John 5, verses 18 through 29. Let me read that for us. It's up on the screen if you want to follow along. This was why the Jews were seeking to kill him all the more. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing for whatever the father does that the son does likewise for the father loves the son and shows him all that he is doing. All he himself is doing and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from life to death. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. 
For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who hear in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So... I want you to, for a minute, imagine yourself in a courtroom as one of these Jewish leaders, and you are on the jury, and you got to make a decision about Jesus, and you have all the evidence of all of the claims that he has made, and you're given a knife to kill him if he claims to be the son of God and you don't believe him, and you're given a mat to bow to him if you do believe that he is God the Son. And you've got to make a decision. So you've got a knife or a mat. The question is, what will you make of him? So what I want to do right now is I want to act as a witness in favor of Jesus in this courtroom while there's questions coming. So the first question, the lawyer asks, did Jesus claim to be God? And the answer is yes. Look in verse 23. It says, so that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. He's making himself equal with God. And you say, well, how do we know we heard this correctly? And you, then you look at verse 18 and you see that the Jews were seeking to kill him because he was making himself equal to God. And you say, well, maybe the Jews, maybe everybody's misunderstanding what he's saying. Well, look, they were seeking to kill him already because he was claiming to be equal to God. Jesus had every opportunity to clarify any misunderstanding about him. But instead of clarifying and saying, no, 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 that's not what I'm saying. He says, that's right. I'm God, the son. And he even seeks to convince them of it. That's why they killed him in the end. The Jewish people and the Romans picked up the knife and not the mat. Why? Because he was claiming to be God. So then the lawyer asked, well, what about his disciples? What did they say about him after he died? They said he was God the Son who's risen from the grave. So then the lawyer says, well, how do we know that they didn't just make this up? The answer is because nobody dies for a lie. There have been times where people have been tricked into thinking that something is true, and they've given their life for something that they believed was true, but they weren't really, they did not claim to be eyewitnesses. Here's the thing about the disciples. They were witnesses of it. They were eyewitnesses, so they would have known if it was true or not. Nobody dies for something that they know is a lie. Nobody is tortured to death for something that they know is a lie. They would have raised up their hands and they would have said, you know what, <laughs> it's a trick, we are making it up, we're gonna just you know, let us go free, sorry about that. They don't do that. They're tortured, they're all hung on a cross besides one for what they have claimed about Jesus. And, and, and here's the other thing, 
all throughout the New Testament, you see people's names. You've been seeing this up until this point when we've been reading John. People are being named. And people are being named because they were eyewitnesses to Jesus being raised from the dead. And all of these people were still alive when the New Testament was written. So if you're going to make something up, you don't make something up and then say, hey, all these people were alive and they saw it. Because if they wouldn't talk to him, they would have said, no, that's not true. I don't know why they told you to come talk to me. That's not true. But they were named so that you could go and talk to them to confirm that it's true. Jesus has really risen from the dead. So what do you make of him? Are you having a mild reaction to him? Have you seen the show Undercover Boss? So the whole premise, if I got this right, the whole premise is that there's a guy up at the top of this company. And he, he's, he's the head of the company, he's the top of the company, and he comes to do the work that the people at the lowest, uh, the lowest of the company are doing. Only he's undercover. Nobody knows that this is the boss. And then at the end, he's revealed that this is the boss, and then they start reacting very differently. The employees start reacting very differently around the boss. Because they realize it's the boss. If they didn't think it was the boss, it wouldn't matter. But they realize it's the boss. So how are you reacting to Jesus? You should either listen to everything he has to say, or you should dismiss him as a crazy person. So, Christian, why are we having such a mild reaction to Jesus? And I want you to know, there, and I hear this all the time, there's a potential that you have skeptical friends and they aren't responding to Jesus and his claims because your life, our lives, your life doesn't look like you really believe that he is God the Son. I mean, the Bible's saying things. And we're taking it more as advice about how to live than a command from God that ought to completely change our lifestyle. You know why that is? Because we're taking the middle ground between the knife and the mat. We're not making a decision about him. But he's not going for it. He's forcing us to make a decision about him. He says, I mean, he... He says things like this. The Bible says things like this. And I'm, I'm talking to the Christian right now. The Bible talks about something that's called first fruits. First fruits is the first of anything you get. So the first of your talents. Everyone in this room has talents. The first of your talents, God says, those are to use for me. He says, the first of your time, that's to be used for me. He says, the first of your treasure, says that that's to be used for me. And you know what we do? We take our time, we take our talents and our treasures, and we put them all up doing things that we want to do. And if there's any scraps in the end, we leave them for God. Yeah, you guys are laughing because you know that it's true. We all are doing this. Because, but, but here's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm God. And if he's God, then he gets the first of it, not the last of it. He's saying, be willing to give up your comfortable lifestyle and come and follow me. 
but he's saying it's worth it. It's worth doing. You don't, the, the truth is, though, you don't really want to listen to him. And, and the reason is because you're having a mild reaction to him. Now, for those of you who are skeptical to Christianity, we've been talking for the last three months about keeping an open mind to who Jesus is and what he's doing and to consider doubting your doubts. And so you've been doing that, and now look what Jesus is doing to you. He's forcing you to make a decision about him. Now, now some of you might be leaning one way or another, and I want you to know that's okay. It takes time to make a decision about him, but know at least that his claims are forcing you to come up with some kind of decision about him. And it cannot be a mild reaction. And do you know why we have mild reactions to him? Well, okay, I'm going to tell you. The, the whole point of Jesus' claim is that he is God and we're not. But we want to be. There's two ways to be like God. One is a good way, a righteous way, a holy way, and another is evil. So the good way to be like God is to love like God does, to love him, to love others, and to have a healthy love for yourself. That's the positive way. The evil way is to have an over-love for yourself, an over-obsession with yourself. What happens is you begin to worship yourself. When, when Satan tempts Adam and Eve, here's how he does it. And how he tempts you, how he tempts me, here's how he does it. You will be like God. He's saying, you deserve to be worshipped. You deserve to sit on the throne. And do you hear the allure behind that? We love the idea of it, if we're being honest. He's saying, I'll give you everything you dreamed of and more. You will be like God. Every one of us wants this. You know how I know that you want this? Because at the root of every single time we sin, every single time we do something that we know is wrong, but we still do it, it's a desire to sit on the throne. It's a desire for us to be worshipped. And that's why Jesus is killed, because he's claiming to be God, and the Jewish people know that God is to be worshipped. Here's what Jesus is basically doing. He's saying, you've been looking for God, you've been looking for me, where here I, here I am, and here's a mat. You know what to do. Now start worshiping. Does that offend you? I, you know how I know that it offends you? Because you don't want to do it. You know what you want? You don't want him to give you the mat. You've got a mat, and you want to give it to other people. And you want them to worship you. Deep down, I think if you're being honest with yourself, that's what you want. Now, you might not think you deserve it, but you still kind of want it. If you are powerful enough, beautiful enough, charming enough, you love the idea of people eating out of the palms of your hands. And so let me be honest with you now. I love the idea of people saying, my pastor friends, the world saying, wow, 
Look at what's going on in the grove. Oh, this is awesome. David, teach us what you're doing. And I'm like, oh, yes. <laughs> you guys, do you, but do you hear how messed up that is? Do you hear how messed up I am in doing that? Like, I know that it's wrong, but I can't help it. So I go to God, I say, God, please get rid of this in my life. But it still keeps showing its ugly face. Okay, ladies, women, deep down, you want people bowing to your beauty. You would never say it, but you love the idea of it. Guys, you love the idea of being the hero where everybody says, oh, wow, look at so-and-so. I want to be just like him. You know, every kid loves the idea of throwing the winning touchdown, hitting the winning home run. Why? Because they want to be worshipped. Every little girl loves the idea of being a princess. Why? Because she wants to be worshipped. Now, some of this, this is just a desire to be loved, and that's healthy. Here's the problem. It's when our desire to be loved becomes an obsession and an over-desire. And what we find is that we start desiring people to worship us. So many of your relationships are struggling because deep down, though you would never admit this, but deep down, you want your spouse, your significant other, even in your friendships, you want others to worship you. It's beca it becomes a perversion. A want to be loved becomes a perversion and a desire to be worshipped. All I'm saying is just admit it. Okay, watch this. <coughs> Wives, what you really want is to say to your husband, hey, I need your help with something. And he puts down his Xbox, con Xbox controller. He comes over to you and he says, oh, thank you so much. I've been waiting to serve you all day long, and you've finally given me this opportunity to do this, and I'm so happy. What do you need me to do? I'm so excited that you've asked me this. Okay. Husbands. You want husbands, you want to walk in the door with your wife ready to, you know what, <laughs> and to say, oh, I'm so glad that you're here so we can, we'll use your imagination, okay? I had to be careful with that one. Yes, yes. Okay, now listen, 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 listen. Here's the problem. Serving each other is a good thing. We want to be serving each other. Here's the problem. When we want to be served, when our desire to be served outweighs our desire to serve others, and that is what we call self-worship. That's our desire to be worshipped. Now, Jesus has claimed to be God, and he shows also in this that he really is the only one who is worthy to be worshipped. And the reason is because he does exactly the opposite 
of what we do. So let's go to the, back to the courtroom. The lawyer says, are you really sure that Jesus is claiming to be God? Because when I'm reading this, it sounds like he's saying that he's submitting to the Father. If Jesus is submitting to the Father, how can he be equal with the Father? Well, here's what you've got to understand. For all of eternity, all of, e- all of eternity, Jesus and the Father have been equal in being and in power. But Jesus submits to the Father. Why? For you. For us. Here's what you have to understand. They took different roles in order that we might be rescued. And he's rescuing us from our desire to be worshipped. I want you to know, our desire to be worshipped, it leads right into an eternal death. Why do I say that? Because whoever, whatever is on the throne, that's where you go to for life. And if you are sitting on the throne, you cannot give yourself life. What we've been saying all throughout John is that Jesus is life. So if he's on the throne, he gives life. Whatever else is on the throne, that's where we go to for life, only it doesn't work. He's the only one who can bring about life for us. So here's what he does. He rescues us from our desire to be on the throne so that we might stand aside and let him take his rightful place. And here's how he does it. He woos us. How does he woo us? It says in Philippians that though he was God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but took the form of a servant, though he was God. Took the form of a servant, Though he was God, he is God worthy to be worshiped, but he lays it all aside, lays all glory aside, taking not the form of God, but a servant. He became God in disguise. He became like the ultimate undercover boss. And he lived perfectly obedient to the father and then laid his crown aside. And do you know what we did? We lived disobedient to the Father and tried to steal the crown. He was everything that we should have been. Do you see, I mean, do you see what kind of God we're talking about here? The God who is worthy of all worship, yet he lays it down for those who have completely rebelled against him and he woos them over. By laying down his crown. And somehow, that makes him even more worthy. Now, I'm speaking in human terms here, but you've got to understand that he is exalted even higher than he was before. How is that if he's already perfect? Here's how. Because we see a greater display and outpouring of his perfection. His willingness to serve those who rejected him, though they ought to have worshipped him. And we hear what he has done, and that makes us say, I'm off the throne. He's far more worthy to be there than me. In fact, 
The best thing for me is for him to be there. He's far more powerful than I am, and he's far more in control, and he's, he uses my life far better than I can use my life. I don't want to be there. I trust him more than I trust myself. I, ho- I hope your mind is being blown right now. This is the problem. This is the problem with preaching is that I never feel like I'm able to communicate the depth of what is being displayed here in God's word. This is going against every single bit of common sense in our way of thinking. This is saying the way up is the way down. This is saying you want power, then give it all away. He's saying, you want to find life? Well, then you lose your life. He's saying, serve and you'll be exalted. When the king of England found out that George Washington, our first president, after two terms, he laid his presidency aside and didn't have to and created this tradition. The king of England said, if he does that, he will be the greatest man to have ever lived. Give over the power. Put down the knife and take up the mat. Submit to him and make him Lord, make him the God of your life. And then what you're going to find is you're doing things like George Washington was doing. You're you're laying your power aside. And what you're going to find is that now you are far more influential to the world around you and the people around you because you're not hungering after power. You're not hungering after worship. You're not hungering after control and approval and comfort. Because you're so caught up in worship towards the one who is really, truly worthy to be worshiped. Are you struggling to put others before you? If so, it's probably because you have not yet put down the knife and taken the mat. At the core of being a Christian is to follow a God who has served. A God who became nothing to make you alive. To be fully alive is to be fully in worship. To be fully alive is to be fully in worship. If you think worshiping God, I mean, this is what you're made for. And if you think worshiping God is boring, then you now know that you've never really worshiped him. You're still believing the lie that Satan has sold that you should be worshiped you could be like God. So then how do you get to the point of dropping the mat and dropping to your knees and worshiping God? How do you get to that point? Here's how. You see finally why he submitted the father and what he submitted to. So I want you to go back into the courtroom. Something absolutely terrifying happens when you realize what you have done. You have put God in the dock. You have put the perfect God on trial. And all of a sudden now, the tables are turned and you realize that every single person in that courtroom is guilty of putting the perfect God on trial. 
we begin to realize that we're guilty. And we begin to realize that the knife is now pressed to our chest. And we start to feel the sting of it right there. We feel the sting. But it says, talking about Jesus, and he has given him authority to execute justice because he is the son of man. So how does Jesus give us life? He's clearly, he's clear. We are clearly guilty. He is the judge and the judge is just. So here's what that means. Judgment has to be carried out. The judge is standing there. And you, and you, you know you're guilty. You're feeling it. You're given this death sentence. So for a moment, I just want you to feel what it feels like to have the knife pressed to the chest. And to know, you know what the verdict is going to be. And feel that. Jesus looked at you across the courtroom. And he knew that the only way for you to live would be for him to trade places with you. He lived the life you should have lived. And, and then died the death that you should have died. And here's what happens. On the cross, the knife that was pressed into your chest is turned around. And it was pushed right into the chest of your rescuer so that you could have the life that he had with the Father. So that you can now be called a son or a daughter of the living God. Don't waste your life chasing your own worship. The mat is before you. Just kneel upon it and call him what he is, the Lord of all. This is how C.S. Lewis ends his thought. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a devil. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Once you accept that view, it no longer becomes terrifying. It's terrifying right up until that point. Until you see that the knife is turned away from you and it is turned towards your rescuer. And you see at that point, there is no reason for God to have nothing but love for you because every single thing that you did wrong was already handled on the cross. So now you stand free from guilt, free from fear of death, and just waiting to enjoy this eternal life with your father. Your sonship, your daughtership was bought by the son of God, turning the knife towards himself for you. So I say, let's grab our mat and let's offer ourselves up to our God. Let's take our hands off of our lives and say, I'm yours, have the throne. I want you there. I don't want to be there. All right, let's pray.
Father, we praise you. We thank you that you have sent your son. God, we pray that as we give of what you call the first fruits, that we would give joyfully to you, knowing that you are our God who has purchased life for us, who has purchased being sons and daughters of the living God. We're yours. Teach us how to worship you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.